way that you will be able to stand before an almighty, holy God. And that is to be wrapped in the holy righteousness of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has given his righteousness to all who repent and believe in him. If you have repented and believed that your faith in Jesus Christ our Lord, you are then bound to his cloak of righteousness. Receive this in remembrance of him. The second element then Christ would have us to be reminded of is this fruit of the vine which represents his blood. It is the cup of blessedness. Indeed, we are blessed in Christ our Lord. Though we have the righteousness for which to stand before God through the life and perfection of Jesus Christ, we have to recognize and confess that we ourselves have sinned. We have fallen short of the glory of God. Those just don't disappear. They must be paid for. Every sin ever committed will be paid for. Jesus Christ paid them all. He took our sin on his body on the tree. Everyone that you ever did, everyone that you ever thought about doing, everyone that you might do. Can I tell you this, beloved? There is therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. No guilt in Christ. He has paid it all. Receive this in remembrance of him. It is fitting that we would then sing the fourth stanza of this communion hymn. Lake leaves us, let us rise together and sing of the blessedness that we have then in Christ our Lord. the world. We do also support many starting churches within our own country, and it's for our own country we'll take a moment to make both a tribute and a prayer as we move forward. And I'd like for you to note two things. One is on your worship folder on the inside of it, I have some scripture verses I want you to see and look at. The second is, if you have your hymn book in your lap, turn to 644 in your hymn book. Six number six. 44, number 644. Today is, of course, 
July 4th, Independence Day, a day in which <clears throat> our forefathers declared independence from tyrannical rule, primarily because the authority at the time did not have, and does not have, the right to take away God-given rights to humanity. Governments never have that privilege, never have that right, although they attempt to exercise it in various ways at various times. We celebrate then. It's not often we do this on the Lord's Day, but since it happens to be that day in our country, which we celebrated, I thought we could pray. We could pray for our nation, which desperately needs it. I'm reminded, of, first of all, this promise that God made at the dedication of the temple. Solomon builds the temple, and you notice here in your worship folder, 2 Chronicles 7.14. Many of you may have it memorized or thought about it before. Here is a covenant promise given by God to the people in behalf of the dedication of the, of the temple. He would say, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal the land. This is given to that particular people at that particular time. But I might remind you, the, it applies to all people. And the reason is that it, it has application. Not a specific promise to all people, but applies because of the character and nature of God. That is something that we need to be reminded of in our country in particular, even within our church. This is who God is. He is a forgiving God. For those that will come, humble themselves before him, seek his face, he will forgive you of your sin. He will cleanse you of all your unrighteousness. And the reason I put Jonah chapter 3 in there is just to demonstrate that very thing. In Jonah chapter 3, if you remember, Jonah is a preacher and he's called to go to a very wicked people in a very wicked state. And he's called to preach the judgment of God. He doesn't want to, but God makes him willing to go and accomplish what God intends to do. His message is real simple. You can find it in verse 4, as I've written it here in the text. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overturned. In other words, judgment is coming. You say, well, where's the gospel in that? It's real simple. If you knew a tornado was going to hit this building this afternoon, what would you do? You would seek refuge. And if you knew the very judgment of God was coming, that in and of itself is a great blessing for people to know. Judgment is certain. Judgment is coming. And you must find refuge. And where will you find refuge? In no other place but God and God alone. It is only the mercy of God that can save you from his wrath. This is indeed what happened. If you notice verse 5, it does say that the people then believe God. They express their faith in God. They call for a fast. They put on sackcloth. From the greatest to the least, that's the imagery in that culture of repentance. 
They are humbling themselves. They are seeking the face of God. They are believing in him. And the king, is the greatest there even, comes to this repentance. And you know what their response is? Well, I have 2 Chronicles 7.14 tattooed to my arm. No, their response is verse 9. Who knows? They don't have this covenant promise. But they say, who knows, God may turn and relent and turn his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And you know the rest of the story. Indeed, God does. God is more willing to forgive your sin than you are to request it. Do you know him? Have you put your trust in him? Is he indeed your refuge? Oh, we should pray for our nation that indeed we would know this God and put our trust in him and only in him. In 1812, a war was declared from the United States against Britain once more. They had been about enslaving Americans to work on their vessels of war, indentured servants, and pressing them into it. There was a young lawyer by the name of Francis Scott Key who attempted to release at least one of his friends. The year was 1814, and the British happened to be nearby with their boats. They just burnt the Capitol, the White House, and the Library of Congress. Brave man to then sail out amongst that armada and the largest naval resource in the world at the time, greatest military might, and he pleaded on the behalf of his friend if they would release him from service. And they agreed to do so. But unfortunately, they had another engagement. They were going to sail north just a little bit to Baltimore. It's not far. And create some havoc and damage there. So Francis had to stay with the armada. But that gave him a bird's eye view of what happened that night as the British shelled Fort McHenry near my hometown. They had a huge flag there, a symbol really of the country and the freedom that God had provided this country. That flag was then a target as the bombs burst right at it and over it, knocking it down several times. Men actually gave their life to hoist it back up. Another would die, another would hoist. And through the night, Francis wrote down what he saw and experienced. We call it our national anthem. It's actually in your hymn book. And you're familiar with it, the Star-Spangled Banner. It's a poem. But what you may not have known is this, that yes, it's a courageous thing, these brave men who somehow was able to survive the greatest military might at that time. You see, those people recognized the very providence of God in blessing them and keeping them as a free nation for his purposes. 
if you'll notice verse 2, which we're not used to hearing, it's, the four, it's verse 2 in our hymn book, but it's actually the, the final stanza in the poem. It has some words I want you to note. As he concludes this anthem now, our anthem, in there is also another national treasure, and that is what became our nation's motto right now. He wrote it at that time because that was the perspective of this anthem about the free man that stands, verse 2 in our hymn book, blessed with victory and peace, may the heaven-rescued land, you see how he's pointing to poetically God's providence, praise the power that hath made and preserved us a nation. And then conquer we must when our cause is just, and this be our motto. What? Let's hear it, correct. Let's hear it. Where's your trust? Is it in God and God alone? I'd like to invite Caroline to come up and sing the first line of this. That's what we're familiar. I thought about singing the second one, but we would stumble through the words. You can look at it. And really, in honor of those who went before us, who did recognize the providential hand in deliverance of a people to grant us freedom, may we use this freedom to proclaim the gospel. I, I got an email the other day from a missionary in the, in the uh, Pacific Islands. Do you know today is the first day they were permitted by their governments to gather together? And we think we have it bad, okay? There's many places. You could have woke up in Saudi Arabia today, <coughs> Afghanistan, India, China. There's a lot of places across the world. We should thank God for his providence that he has granted to us. And as Psalm 56, 16, I think it is, says, in God we trust. Would you uh, lead us, Caroline, in this hymn? And let's stand in honor of singing of our national anthem from that perspective. And um, you can chime in or hum along, and then I'll pray for our nation.
God bless you. You may be seated. I guess I've prayed for long. Let's go to the Lord. Well, Father, we come to you on behalf of our nation. We are thankful that you have providentially given us a free land, that we have declared it in our founding documents that indeed you and you alone, the source of all the rights and privileges that we have. Great responsibility that we have, too, as your people, to proclaim your truth, to call people to indeed find their trust in you. I pray that our motto will not just be the inscription on our currency, but truly would be inscribed on our hearts. I pray, Father, even now that you would save many. Call people to repentance and faith. The sure judgment that indeed will come, it will be here. There is no safe place, no security other than you. And so, Father, I do pray that you will quicken hearts, make people come to the awareness of this great truth. In humility, I pray and I repent on behalf of the rebellion against you that is so rampant in these days, even to a country that has documented the great truths of who you are, inscribed in stone and granite throughout our courthouses and monuments, tributes to you, I pray that these will not be hypocritical phrases, but we might see them in generations to come and be reminded of these great truths. I pray even now that you would abolish abortion in our nation. Abolish it. Don't minimize it. Abolish it. Raise people up with a great awareness of the sanctity of life from the day you give it to the day that you take it away. May all be reverenced because your crowning creation made in the image of God. I do also pray for our country in particular and other nations as well that would rebel against you and how you fearfully and wonderfully made each of us, designed us uniquely as male and female, not to compete with one another, not to compare in that regard, but certainly to compliment. I pray for the abuse of women even now that you would abolish that in our own country. I pray, Father, that you will raise up many young daughters then to be loving mothers, nurturing, raising kids up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord supporting and strengthening those who would lead and provide and protect in ways that are appropriate to the relationships. I pray, Father, for men, and particularly for men of faith, men that have put their trust in you. I pray we would stand firm to be courageous, not to win some skirmish or a battle or a fight, but to stand for truth, to stand for the truth that you have declared and revealed to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
I pray for the fathers here that they would continue to lead, provide, and protect. I pray for the great influence throughout our country. For those that are in leadership, we do pray for them, leaders of our nation. I pray that you will break the very bones of those that rebel against you. I pray that you will cause them to be humbled before you, to repent and trust and pray. Impossible, Lord, that Nineveh would come to repentance and faith, but you are a God that can do well beyond anything we can imagine or think. And so I pray for an outpouring of God's grace in this land. I pray, Father, for a, a revival of regenerate hearts. May the gospel go forward from this place and many other pulpits across the land and bring the saving life of Jesus Christ, the quickening power of his grace, the strength of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the people to walk in newness of life. May you be our soul affection. May you be glorified in all that we do, even this day, as we think about your goodness and providence in granting to us freedoms and uh, potential beyond any other nation. You're a good and gracious God, and we may we use all these gifts to bring glory to your name and indeed to praise you this day as always. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Take your hymn books and stand and turn to number 646. My country, tis of thee. Our Father's God to thee, author of liberty to thee, we sing. 646.
Psalm 33, 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Amen. 641. Independence Day. Amen. It's truly a blessing to uh, be with you all this Lord's Day, and it is a great privilege uh, to be called upon to read God wor God's Word before you. Today we'll be reading Psalm 61. You can find that on page 478 in your pew Bible, page 478 and into 479. Psalm 61 is uh, yet another rich example uh, 
from David of a godly response to overwhelming and depressing developments in life. I'll also uh, quickly share a passage from uh, 2 Corinthians. It'll be 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 5, 5. I forgot to mark it, so let me turn there quickly as you do. It'll make sense as why we read that portion as well, but I just wanted to show you the connection there um, between Psalm 61 and that passage in 2 Corinthians um, and how God has providentially had both of these on my mind throughout the week as I prepare for this. Um, they both reference our eternal home and point us to have our focus there. Again, as overwhelming and depressing developments occur in life, we have to look to the eternal things. Today is our country's Independence Day, and regardless of how societal winds may blow, as long as I'm around in my home, we will celebrate this day. The uh, hymn we just sang is always been one of my favorite patriotic songs. I've played it for my girls at the breakfast table this morning. And I was really overcome. It wasn't that long ago that I was their age and we sang these songs in school. We had an entire presentation at the end of the school year leading into the summer um, year after year where we all had to learn these patriotic songs and I just thought there's no way that if, if, if my child was in school today that they would be allowed to to sing as a group these songs to learn these songs and it burdened me but I was also preparing to come and share with you that in overwhelming and depressing developments in life that we are to lean on God and not be burdened so much with the temporal things. I, I, I have a responsibility to my family to teach them and, and, and take care of them, but ultimately they're in God's hands. In our bulletin, you'll see that the last hymn we plan to sing today is the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Most of you that know me well know that um, I'm quite the sports fan, so when I see the Battle Hymn of Republic, I immediately go to the idea that that is the University of Georgia's fight song. Um, but that's relevant because it was announced publicly this week that their former football coach, um, Coach Mark Richt, uh, he was their coach for 14 or 15 years, he'd been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And I heard this as I was driving home. I was listening to the radio, and um, the radio host also, when they made that announcement, they read in full Coach uh, Rick's tweet in response to this, this condition that he has. So I'm going to read it for you as well. Truthfully, I look at it as a momentary light affliction compared to the future glory in heaven. Thank you, Jesus, for promising us a future blessing of a glorified body 
that has no sin and no disease. And I was moved at that time that someone in, as such a public figure would boldly make that statement and show his faith at a time where millions of people are looking at him, wondering how he's responding to this. Let's look together to God's word this morning, Psalm 61, and then 2 Corinthians 4, 16, 5 through 5, uh, verse uh, 5 of chapter 5. Psalm 61, to the choir master with stringed instruments of David. Hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my, my vows day after day. Then to 2 Corinthians 4.16. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not at the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if this tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Let's pray together. Father God, my prayer today for myself, for your people, that whatever trials, tribulations, difficulties we may experience in this life, you would help us to set our eyes on the things which are eternal. When we are burdened by temporary, temporal difficulties, help us to call out to you. Father, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Let that be our testimony to this lost world. 
Let Christ's glory consume our hearts and our minds. And in all that we do, how we live on this earth, let us be a witness to the glory of Christ that you have shown to us. Amen.
I almost tempted to have Jerry come on up and do the benediction since we've had about five or six sermons so far. <laughs> but we'll have one more and um, we'll see if I can finish up before dark so y'all can go out and see some fireworks. How about that? John chapter 17. John chapter 17. We're returning. If you haven't been with us, we're going through the Gospel of John. We found ourselves at chapter 17. It is indeed the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. The high priest in the Old Testament would go in once a year to give a prayer and then a sacrifice. Christ is doing that here. It's the day before. He is the eve. It's the night before. He's going to sacrifice his life and make atonement for sin, but he will pray. And we're able to listen in, if you will, and hear his prayer on behalf of his disciples. He's praying specifically for those 11 that is in the room. He sent Judas away. He was not a true disciple. The 11 that remain are. Jesus prayed for them, in particular, that they would glorify Christ in their life, that they would indeed be faithful, loyal, that they would have unity among themselves, joy as they would go about, that they would be separated or sanctified from the world, and indeed he commissioned them as sent ones, or in this case specifically, Apostles with a capital A in a technical way. Now, I've said all along that, yeah, it is directed to these, but it applies to all who would follow in their steps. That is, all who would come to Christ and believe in him, all that come to Christ and believe in him, or hence we use the term Christian. You could also use the term disciple. You could use the term follower. There's aspects of this that certainly applies, and I've said that all along, but you don't need to take my word for it. Jesus explains that in our text this morning. We're at verse 20 in chapter 17, where he specifically says in his prayer, and I'm glad he does this to clarify, he says, I I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Remember, Jesus has already stated he's not praying for the world. He's praying for them. Who's the them? Verse 9, that is the one that is that the ones that have been given to him by the Father. World in in that sense, here it can, it means two different things. One, it does refer to people. He's not praying for just everybody in generic person. But then we get down to verse 11 in chapter 17. He uses world in a different way, and that is the world system. Where he says, I'm no longer in the world. That is the world system. He was physically there on earth, but he's not in the system anymore. He wasn't being engaged with it. This is his final prayer. He's going to go to Calvary. He says, but they, that's these disciples that remain, they are in the world. I'm coming to you, he would say, Holy Father, keep them in your name. 
and he prays for their unity, which uh, we're going to focus on some today, again, as he repeats it. World, in this sense, is taken as fallen human system, a world that is corrupted by the works of the world, the works of the devil. They're synonymous. He says, I don't ask that you take them out, verse 15, but that you keep them from who? The evil one, the devil himself. They are not of the world. That is, they're no longer part of that world system, just as I am no longer of the world. I, or should I say, just as I am not of the world. Christ was never of the world. And those that come to Christ are no longer of the world. They were. But he leads them out of the domain of darkness into the domain of light, into Christ. There is a distinction then between those that are in Christ and those that are not, both in them as a person, as a regenerate, but also in their mind is that they have a totally different, and we might say, world view. Jesus prays for those that have been taken out of the sea of fallen humanity, sanctified, washed by the world from the fallen system. But as I noted already, verse 20, it isn't just these 11. They're the immediate focus. They will have a distinctive role to play in church history. But this prayer then is applicable to all who would be Christians, disciples, followers of Christ, learners of him. Who's the you? It is those who believe in me through their word. Verse 20. The apostles will be foundational to the church. It is built then on those apostles who function as missionaries and go about the land preaching the gospel. There are prophets then that are in place who know the very words of Christ before they're put in scripture. That's the foundation. It's a unique time. Christ, the chief cornerstone, equips them to go out and preach the gospel and to build churches. Preach Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sin. They, they will be given a costly mission, these in particular. The job that they are going to give will cost them their life. They will literally pick up their cross and follow Christ on mission. That is our mission. We may not have the same exact role, but can I tell you this? All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's not going to be equal. You'll have your unique thing to bear and to carry and maybe a unique calling to go to certain places and to do certain things, but I can assure you this. Stand up for Christ and the world system will want to bring you down. Whatever mission or ministry Christ has given to you, our role then is to glorify him in all we do, even in death. 
In chapter 21, when we get to it, Peter, he reminds the disciples that indeed Peter, that very one, would glorify Christ, how? In his martyrdom, in his witness for Christ to the point of death. That was what was chosen for him. After saying this, he tells the disciples, come follow me. God has a wonderful plan for your life. In his case, it included martyrdom. I don't know what the case is for you. But the wonderful plan is to follow Christ, to glorify him, to receive the blessings that he has for you in Christ and the mission that he has called you to. Paul had this in his mind when he would say, for me to what? To live is Christ and to die is gain. No wonder these early followers of Christ turned the world upside down. Could you imagine if those that would claim to know Christ and follow him had that idea and ideology in their life? Do you think it might turn a a few people around a bit? Instead, today we have very much ways of just trying to find a way to incorporate and adopt the world system and the world's thinking and make it palatable for all that we all might just get along. It's not going to happen. Christ is not of this world. And neither are those who follow Christ. This task may not be easy for some. Some, it it might be easier than for others. We don't know. But in any case, you're going to need divine help. Jesus Christ knows this, and he sends the Holy Spirit. These folks, these disciples won't be able to make it without the power of the Spirit, and neither will you. It's going to take the power of the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh. You can't do it on your own. It's going to take the power of the Spirit to accompany the proclamation of the gospel to change the heart. You're not going to change somebody's heart just by showing them logically what's right and wrong. Of course it is. The world's insane because they're of the evil one. Their mind is corrupted. Yeah, there might be a few points of rational thought there, but not. it seems to be diminishing in these days. But I digress. I'll have to finish the sermon before it gets dark. Let's look at John 20, 17, verse 20, and the rest of the chapter, and maybe I can get a point in or two this week, and you'll have to come back next week for me to finish. But let's read it in context where Jesus then shifts and really summarizes a lot of what he's already said and make sure that you know it and I know it today. He says, verse 20, I don't pray for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory, 
that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world doesn't know you. That's the problem. Christ says, I know you. And those and these know you, know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let us pray. Oh, Father, I do pray the words of Christ recorded for us this slice of his high priestly prayer. I pray that it would reach the hearts of your people to bring about greater faith in Christ. Comfort those that need comfort, convict those who would go astray. Grant us courage to stay and stand in the truth and an increased amount of joy overflowing thankfulness and praise to your holy name. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if I were to divide this section up, I would do it at least in four parts, unity, perfection, blessedness, and perseverance. And we'll see what I can get to, maybe at least the first point today. We shall see. Notice these concepts here as I've read this. You've kind of heard it before if you're reading the text along with us or have been with us as I've taught on this. Jesus has a way of doing this, kind of circling back, going through some of the same themes, but saying it slightly different. This is a great teaching method, by the way. Just because you hear it one time doesn't mean you don't need to hear it again. We need to hear it again and again, and you wouldn't have to hear it if you got it all the first time. <laughs> There's more there, and it's more profound than you can imagine. Jesus is the master teacher. He reminds his disciples and those that will become his disciples to keep these things in mind as, the, as they were tasked to pick up the cross and follow Christ. And as you're tasked to pick up the cross and follow Christ, what will be on your mind? Oh, this cross hurts. It's heavy. It's a lot to bear. No, here's what Christ would have you think on. Verse 21, he talks about a union, a union among the saints in Christ, this union in Christ. He says that they all may be one. This oneness that he's talking here is not a uniformity of ideas or practices. This is a union with God through our relationship with Jesus Christ. And based on that, we can have a union then with one another. It is fundamentally and foundationally a spiritual union. Remember, Christ came to save his people from their sin. The primary target is the Jews. That's who he went to. 
But he explains, as John does in chapter 10 and verse 16, he says, I have other sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Who are what? They're not Jews. That's, a whole, that's the other class. You're either a Jew or you're not a Jew. The Jew had the covenant, and Christ came to them. They didn't receive him. He went out because he had others that are not of this fold, and then he would need to bring them in also. And they will listen to my voice. That is, they will obey. They will hear the gospel, they will repent, and they will believe. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. That's the imagery. It is a spiritual union. May be different people involved, different dialects involved, different ethnicities involved, but how are they made one? They are made one through Jesus Christ. Paul would tell the church at Rome in chapter 12 that there are many but one body in Christ, individually members of it. You don't lose your individuality. You always have it. You're always uniquely made for who you are, whatever those expressions are in your life, but yet there is a oneness. How? Because of your union in Christ. He would tell the church of Galatia in that respect in 328, there's neither Greek or Jew, slave or free, male or female, because you're all one in Christ. Those individuality distinctions are not being diminished. They'll always be there. There will be a uniqueness there, but yet what draws us together is the singularity of our union with Christ. He would unite things together. And as he says to the church at Ephesus in chapter 4, then there is one body, one spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to that indeed call. There is a spiritual union. And because of that spiritual union, then we can have a physical union. We often call that fellowship among the saints. And for here, I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 to see it expressed in the early church. As they gathered together, the early church, down to verse 41, they have been brought together and united in Christ through their spiritual union with him, but it does affect how they are and react with one another. Notice verse 41, to describe those that ha are united with Christ, they received his word, right? They received his word and were baptized. And there were added in that day 3,000 souls. So they come together. They hear the voice of Christ, right? They're folded into it, and they are physically baptized. The physical baptism doesn't do anything about united, uniting somebody to Christ. It simply demonstrates the fact that you are. It is a physical expression of that spiritual reality, and then they gather together who these ununited people, if you will, a thousand, thousand, three thousand people, Right Now, all of a sudden, they're united together because they have been immersed in Christ. 
They have all received his word. And that is what brings about unity within the church. There's diversity of ideas and ideologies and all kinds of things. But what is essential is that you receive the very words of Christ. And how is that expressed? By the way, this is the first sermon I ever preached here, I think, in verse 42. And see, this is where you're going to get 12 sermons a day here. But in um, any case, I could go off on this one. It's great. Look at, verse 30, look at verse 42 as it expresses then how they behave. Well, they devote themselves. That is a diligent pursuit to what? The apostles' teaching. Of course, the apostles were sent by Christ to teach the people all things that Christ had taught them, right? So no wonder they're devoted to it because the apostles' teaching is Christ's teaching. The Holy Spirit reminds them, as Christ said, of it, and then they put it in the Word right here. This is why we actually open this up, read it, and then explain it. These are Christ's words, the apostles' teaching. The pastor's teaching needs to be from this. That's what they're devoted to. Diligently studying, hearing, receiving. And notice the second thing, and then the fellowship. They were devoted to fellowship. Fellowship, we know the word in Greek, it's koinonia, you've heard it. The idea is they actually get together and do things together. They're engaged in the life of one another. This third thing that's mentioned is breaking of bread. It is a way of expression of what we just did this morning. And that is essential to their gathering together. They're communing with Christ. It's the way they, that's the way they described it at that time, as breaking of bread. They might have had a meal alongside of it in practice, and many times they did. But the feature was communion with Christ, the cup and the bread. And then prayer. These are the four essential signs of a healthy church. To be bathed in prayer, to commune with Christ, to fellowship with one another, to be devoted to the very word of God. Those are the things then that would unify together. God's people praying together and four things together. And what happens? Well, all, verse 43, comes upon any, everyone. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Remember, they had a unique role. And like Christ's word was confirmed by the signs that he did, so his apostles who followed him, apostles with the capital A here, these specific disciples were given unique gifts to verify that indeed what they were doing is the very things that Christ had commanded to them. You don't need it anymore. The reason is they wrote it in a book. Now you have it. That's how you can examine to see if these things are so. Verse 44 they believed together and had all things in common. The idea is now there was a bringing together of people 
united together thousands of people from diverse backgrounds, dialects, ideas, and ideologies, and whatever it might be, all of that is broken down and bound together as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's that spiritual union that brought about the true relationship, not because you necessarily liked somebody, you enjoyed their food or their fellowship of just being around their person and personality. It is their union with Christ that brought them together. And in a practical way, in their circumstance, This is a description of what happened, not a prescription for everybody to do. Not everybody has to get nailed to a cross upside down like Peter and glorify God, right? (laughs) So not everybody has to go home and get rid of all your things, sell it, and give it to somebody else, except for you. No. Um, It's just a description of what this is. They had a need. There was thousands of people coming to Christ meant they lost their job, their livelihood, their money. Now they they were hungry and needed food. So since they were united with Christ, they were brothers and sisters in Christ in that sense, then they helped one another. They praised God. They were together, they said. They received their food, verse 46, with glad and generous hearts. They were glad in what God gave them. And out of the overflow of what God gave them, they recognized everything that's been given to me. Uh, If I can share it with others that actually have a real need, I will do that. And they began doing that, distributing to the poor and people that had various needs. They praised God and they had favor, verse 47, with all the people. If we ever get to that section there, this is one of the means by which God then would witness to the world. You know why? You come into church and you meet God's people. When I first came here, there wasn't any people. Okay, there were six. And still I started preaching, and then four of them left. Jerry and his wife's the only ones that stayed. Hey, Jerry, glad you stayed. My wife said, that's great. You're just getting rid of dead wood. I said, we don't even have any wood now. Except Jerry. Most faithful man, I I know. I never could run them off. I tried. So I would tell people, you know what? You can come here. We don't have all the games and tricks and shows and all kinds of stuff. Now, I like good singing. I like the piano and these beautiful ladies singing. And I like, I even like air conditioning. That's nice. It works. I tell you, one thing we had that was distinctive, I said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to open up the Word of God and explain it. And it might be a judgment to people who will not come in here. I don't want it to be. That was the mission, you know, for most of the Old Testament prophets. You know that, don't you? Nobody wanted to hear what they had to say. They got a lot worse treatment than I'd ever get. Some of them, they saw it in two threw some of them in a well, spit at them, threw rocks at them. Tough sledding in most cases. 
But I did pray for fruit. I prayed that God would send people that would love his word, would want to grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord and minister then to one another. And slowly by slowly, folks came in and did that. That's a great joy, which I don't take for granted. And so now when I tell people, come, I don't say, oh, come, because all we, we open the Word and, and read the Word and, and preach the Word, which is foundational, fundamental. But you know what else you can do? You can see God's people, real Christians. And that's a blessing to me, real followers of Christ. Oh, they, they're different about a lot of their tastes and practices and things that they desire. But I tell you what, deep in their soul, they know Christ. They've heard his voice, and they're following him. And it's a great encouragement, I think even better, just to be in the presence of God's people, to be encouraged by them, to hear their prayers, to hear their testimonies. <laughs> I love when the men read the scriptures around here and, and talk about how it affects them for others to pray and so forth and see how God is working in their life. Well, that wasn't scripted, so now I'm in trouble. But this is what God does in the church. He unites people in Christ, fed on his word, overflowing in fellowship with one another, truly communing with Christ and prayer to be essential part of their life. And so why? Why this, why this union? Let's look at Christ's reason he gives for it back in our text at verse 21, 1721. Why? Because this, beloved, is a witness to the world. He has organized this, sent these apostles out to, to make more, to be in union with Christ and with others. Why? Because that the world might believe that you have sent me. Verse 21. How's the world going to believe that you sent me? It is the united fellowship of the saints proclaiming the words of Christ, living it out in their own life, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven us, praying for one another as Christ has prayed for us, encouraging one another as Christ encouraged us, Serving one another as Christ has served us. How did he serve us? We already see it in the demonstration of how he served his disciples. The union then with Christ is not some sort of mystical, superficial, superstitious, hocus-pocus type thing. It is a genuine, supernatural change of the very heart. You're bound to Christ and sanctified by him. I think I can go through two more texts and I'll have to finish. But I think it'd be helpful to look at that. Let's look at Romans chapter 6. 
This union with Christ is what is the basis for our union with one another, and we cannot forget that. It is a supernatural change of heart. It is his grace which changes the disposition of our own heart. In Romans chapter 6, Paul has told the church at Rome that whatever your transgression is, Christ will forgive. That grace, as he says it, abounds more. And that's something we need to have fixed on our mind. Where sin increased, grace abounded more. So what shall we say then, verse 1? The objector might say, do we then continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, if you say that, aren't you just letting people off the hook so that they can go out and party on Saturday night and then come to confessional on Sunday? Can I tell you this? They... The, uh, the apostles' message, that's impossible. So you can go ahead and preach where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. You need to know it. Is anybody going to take advantage of it? No, it's actually impossible. That's what my translation reads, verse 2, by no means. Megenital. It all. It's from Gunamai, it, and by putting the may, it's a negative. That is, it isn't a possibility. Why is that not a possibility? And he gives the argument right here. How can we who died to sin still live in it? See, this union with Christ is not just some verbal confession that you make, some sort of, uh, some sort of um, creed that you confess. It is a supernatural experience in which you're united to Christ, and therefore it is impossible to live in continued sin to be the practice of your life because you've died to it in reality, in your union with Christ. How can we who died to sin still live in it, as he says? Through your union with Christ, that's where he's going. Think of Christ as we commune with him today. What did he do? He took on sin on his body, and then he did what? He died to it. He was buried. It was complete, paid in full on the cross, buried, truly done. And then he rose again. In newness of life. That's what he's getting to in this next section, verse 3. Don't you know that all of us who have been, and here I would like to translate, immersed into Christ, because you, you, you might be confused.
seated him, raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus is getting to. Ephesians chapter 4, that's my last text. I'll finish with this.
differ um, ecclesiastical practices, personal preferences, according to our conscience. We may have different ministry efforts and so forth, depending on our gifts, our calling, and the needs of the time. But this solid unity is in Christ and Christ alone. He has called his disciples then affects then how they must live. And it is experienced not only in their personal lives of holiness, righteousness, but in how they engage with one another, particularly in the body of Christ. And when people that are outside Christ see that,
for Christ Jesus to continue to intercede on our behalf. Pray for your people. Pray for my friends. We would recognize and be reminded that he is faithful. situation and whatever might develop. May the joy of Christ cease to be held in him and the hope of eternal life in Christ be that which guides us even this day. Thank you for the blessing of living in eternity with you and in Christ Jesus. We speak of that. Let us have given to the Lord.